session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Delacqui, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I begin, I actually wanted to make an announcement for this Thursday. Last week, I was very happy to be joined by two members of the Iranian student group at UCLA, and this Thursday, if you're in the Los Angeles area, I hope you can come to the peace panel that they are having um, at UCLA at Royce in Royce Building from 6 to 8 p.m. That's November 21st, Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. It's a peace panel, and I'm very happy to be on that panel that night, so I hope to see you there. All right, before I get into the book of the week uh, from last week, this week's book of the week is Brief Answers to the Big Questions by Stephen Hawking. Brief Answers to the Big Questions, Stephen Hawking. So uh, this book was published, I believe, after his death. I was just reading a little bit uh, about it. But he talks about some of the big questions, things like, is there a God? Um, Should we colonize space? Will we survive on Earth? From Stephen Hawking, one of the the greatest scientists and thinkers of the 20th and 21st century. Um, So thank you. This book was recommended to me by, let me get the name, Kapach, Kapach. I'm not sure how uh, to say that, Uh, but thank you for that recommendation. Brief Answers to the Big Questions by Stephen Hawking. All right, the book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about tonight is Hive Mind by Sarah Rose Kavanaugh, Hive Mind, The New Science of Tribalism in Our Divided World. Um, again, judged and preferred or wanted this book by its cover and what it was about. Hive Mind, we see a lot of people thinking and talking about how we don't think for ourselves a lot of times, that people um, can be misled by certain things and can follow one another without really thinking about things and social media and the digital age can make this contagion even more rapid or make it happen even more quickly so um, even the the subtitle the new science of tribalism in our divided world definitely grabbed my attention but it was a great book what I actually really overall enjoyed about uh, Dr. Kavanaugh's approach was that it was uh, well-rounded it was looking at the gray rather than making things black and white. And a lot of times people are drawn to the black and white because we want that clarity. We want someone just to tell us this is good and this is bad and we do this or don't do this. Um, But that's not how the approach was in this book. It was a lot more about the nuance and the gray area. Things like is social media good or bad? People want an answer. And she doesn't say that it's good or bad, but she does... uh, describe or outline 
the potential goods and the potential bads and how individually and even collectively we can try to maximize the good and minimize the bad, as is true with any type of technology. But just getting into that title, Hive Mind, she makes a lot of analogies and connections to honeybees who work together, um, but also communicate in various ways, including chemically. And so we see humans also, and there's even some evidence of chemical communication. We tend to think that humans don't use pheromones much for communication. It does appear that we communicate in some ways chemically, although not consciously. Uh, some interesting studies have been done, uh, interesting and a little bit maybe people will think disgusting, but having people smell sweat. So they had men, and as she notes, because the people who made the study thought men would be smellier, so they had men get sweaty either while watching something scary, so they were either fearful or afraid, or something disgusting. And then they had some unfortunate, uh, unfortunately for these women, come in to smell the sweat. And what was interesting was they didn't ask them, are you, do you think there's fear or do you think there's disgust in what you're smelling or what was the person experiencing? But they just measured some signs of fear or disgust. And they saw that the women who were smelling the fearful sweat or the sweat from someone who's watching something that made them fearful, they reacted in that way too in subtle ways. Things like expanding their eyes or noticing things more from the periphery, whereas someone who's smelling the sweat from disgust actually made their mouth smaller. They sniffed less, meaning they were pushing away, which is what we do when we're feeling disgusted. So in this unconscious way, we see that there was actually some contagion from actually even the chemicals in this case. Um, but that's one way, maybe not the most common, but we do see that humans are very much affected by one another and often in ways we don't realize. So unconsciously, we are constantly affecting one another are being affected by our environment, by various things. And I've shared lots of books uh, over the last couple of years that look at this. Things like if you're holding a hot cup of coffee versus a cold cup of coffee, it could affect how warm you think the person that you are meeting is. So maybe on that first date, meet for a coffee rather than a cold drink because if they're holding that coffee, it could affect how they're seeing you. Of course, these effects are often subtle. Um, and also, I don't like for people to try to think of ways to get someone to like them. Sometimes when I talk about dating, you, you'll probably notice that. Uh, I don't like um, techniques that say how to get a guy or how to get a girl or guarantee ways to get a guy or get a girl because I think there's lots of things wrong with that. First of all, promising something that's not possible. Uh, secondly, um, that it's trying to get someone, meaning that it's not a genuine connection. It's not somehow tricking them. But anyway, I, I digress. But coming back to the book, we definitely know we're affected by so many things unconsciously, but definitely we get affected by each other. And so we do like to think that we think only for ourselves a lot of times, that I'm an independent thinker. I'm not affected by what people think. I don't care what people think, but we all care and are all are affected by what people think. And actually having that awareness is more helpful than having this mindset or wanting to cling to this desire that we aren't affected by others. We absolutely are. And sometimes that's not all bad, but we want to be aware of that. And actually she talks about, I think it's from Dr. Matthew Lieberman, who wrote the book Social I talked about, I think it was last year, uh, how maybe the self might be this 
great way for us to trick ourselves. So I think I'm thinking for myself, but really it's a, a Trojan horse to allow other people's ideas to affect me. So I can think, yes, I like doing these things. I like doing that because I like them, but really unwittingly it's the group influencing me, but also that allows me to feel included and accepted by the group all the while feeling good about the fact that I think I'm doing it because of myself. So interesting uh, way of looking at things, but definitely we're affected by one another. And even with that, she says that's not all good or all bad. It's easy to think of this black and white, that you're either a sheep who just follows everyone and doesn't think for yourself, or you're an independent thinker. But the truth is really somewhere in between, and what's healthy is somewhere in between. We want to be individuals, and it can be good to think for ourselves, of course, to question things, to to question ourselves, even to try to understand ourselves better, but to completely disconnect ourselves from everyone is not good either. And so some of what we see in the rise of mental health, as she talks about in some ways in the book, a lot of times it might be attributed to something like smartphones. I'm sure that does have an effect. Smartphones and uh, devices and social media can have an effect, but probably doesn't explain all the rise we might see in depression or anxiety. But some people argue that also we're becoming more disconnected. That also can contribute to th things like depression and anxiety. I think they both make sense. Um, but, you know, this whole idea of tribalism also brings up this us and them type of thinking. And I think in the book she talks about things like dehumanization, which I've talked a lot about on this show and I think is very important, but a big part of what makes us sometimes uh, feel a dehumanization effect can be, a, that's a stronger version of a us versus a them. And so she talks to many different scientists and I thought it was good that it was balanced on a lot of issues, talking to people who are on one side or the other side of an issue, usually more on, it seemed like the side that she agreed with, but sometimes she wasn't completely in agreement with what people that she interviewed and shared their thoughts were saying. Um, but what we see is that some people might think, well, we're very tribal and we hate the other and we're always going to want to fight with the other. But there are some, uh, I think it was anthropologists and evolutionary biologists that don't think it was so negative towards others. It actually might have been more about favoring the in-group, wanting to take care of those like us, but not necessarily hating people who are different from us. And I thought that was interesting. And not only that, but what's interesting is who we consider us and them can change as well. And we can, in some ways, consciously affect that over time. You might think of your us as your cultural group, but if you interact more and understand more about people who are different from you culturally or ethnically, you will can start to see them more of a you also. Or you might have a team, and in that team there could be people from different races, uh, but and so you won't think of them as your them, you'll think of them as an us. And it's funny, right now I'm using as a bookmark uh, a ticket from a Lakers game I went to recently, and on that ticket is LeBron James, a basketball player, and he used to be a quote-unquote them because he wasn't on the Lakers, which is my team, but now he's on the Lakers, um, and so he's an us. And so it's kind of funny how those ways things can change too, but we don't just need people to change teams, we can change the ways that we see people. It could start with seeing just our family. Then we there's um, it's reminding me of compassion meditation that some people will do, where they will first start by loving themselves. Then you keep expanding that circle, feeling love, showing love for 
your family, friends, then even people you don't know or you don't like, and eventually the whole world or even all living beings and even the world itself. And we can do that. So as much as we can have a tendency to prefer an us, that does seem to be true. What us is or who us includes is definitely something that we can affect and change. And that's what we want to be mindful of. So rather than just going into our corners and thinking we have to hate people that are different from us in some way, realize that we have the power to change who we consider us and them. And we want to actively work to make that circle of us even bigger. I also thought again, how she discussed the nuance of things, uh, talking about technology and how people always throughout history essentially have been so worried and freaked out about new advents in technology that it's going to ruin society and ruin people or ruin the youth. And so we hear that a lot about smartphones and social media and what it's doing to the current generation. And of course, there are things we should be concerned about. So it's not saying there's nothing to worry about, but it's interesting. Uh, she shared an article where um, I believe, let's see, Vaughn Bell, I'm not sure if I'm saying that first name right, but wrote an article called Don't Touch That Dial and was looking at throughout the human experience how every time there's been an advent in technology, people have freaked out. And actually starting with Socrates, and apparently he was alarmed at the spread of writing because with writing, then why would people have a motivation to remember things? And this could affect the way we think and remember things. And there could be that effect. It actually does have an effect. But again, it wasn't something that most people would think has destroyed society in some way. And so we see that same thing with smartphones. It's ruining everything, making everything bad. And I think she does explain the pros and the cons and being aware of that. And for me, this is where it's so important. I've talked about this a lot, that looking at technology and also uh, the book Mindful Tech, I was very lucky to have the author on the show via telephone. I think it was it David Levy. I can't remember for sure, but I think it was Levy was the last name. But it was about becoming mindful of the way we use technology. So don't just think of it as good and bad and really to survive in today's world. You can't really completely disconnect realistically. So you do need to be connected in some way, but being mindful of how you are using your technology. And, and some of that was echoed in this book as well, uh, to be mindful of how you use technology. And for me, it's always about looking at, are you using technology and maybe more specifically your phone, but let's just say technology to connect or to disconnect because it can have the potential for both. We can use it to connect because you can FaceTime with someone who's far away that you really care about. You can text people that you can't see or be close to. You can send a message to someone far away. You can um, meet people that you wouldn't get to meet, even if it's virtually, who might be connected to you in some way. You have some type of mental illness or physical illness, or you like some type of show that not a lot of people like, and you can find other like-minded individuals, and it can actually help you connect. So there's lots of ways that our phones can be used to connect, but then they can also be a way to disconnect. We can disconnect from the people around us because maybe it's uncomfortable or awkward or we don't feel very good and go into our phone. Um, we can uh, be next to our loved one and text someone else or look at something online rather than talking to them. And also for me, what's very important and sometimes I think ignored is the connection to ourselves. I think a lot of people use their phone as a way to disconnect from themselves. They 
sit down somewhere and they could get in touch with their thoughts and their feelings, but because most people don't like to do that because there are some things in those thoughts and feelings they don't really like, they disconnect by taking out their phone and not really even paying attention, but just checking out. So it's used as a way of checking out from themselves. So to me, we have to be aware of that. How are we using our phone and technology and even social media as a way to connect or disconnect? And social media is another one of those things that people very, uh, you know, it's very easy to just say it's all bad and look how bad it is and creating comparison culture and making people more shallow and lots of other things. And I think actually that's happening a lot. So you've even probably heard me talk about those topics on this show. Um, but it doesn't mean that all of social media is bad. And so the article talks about how some people you can do likes and things or likes or heart something on Twitter, let's say, but that has much less of an impact than when people send personal messages to each other. That actually engagement can lead to um, more feelings of connection. And so the book does a great job of talking about how we actually want to make sure we stay connected. So if we have this fear of becoming part of the collective, that's actually not a good thing. We need to be part of the collective. We, if we isolate ourselves because we think it's bad to be in this hive mind mindset that we're connected to others, that's a problem. But of course, blindly following is also a problem. We can't not think about things or not evaluate what's going on. That's going to have its own issues. And actually related to being part of a collective, uh, I mentioned going to the Lakers game that I have the ticket now, um, on Friday, actually, I went, and there was a part of the game where uh, LeBron James, who I mentioned earlier, did a very uh, a spectacular dunk that got the crowd going, and I started myself going pretty crazy. And then when I saw the game yesterday on TV, they showed people's reactions to that moment, and I saw myself in one of the shots with my hands on my head because I was kind of going crazy, and I was lost in that moment with the crowd and the whole excitement, but it felt great, and I, I really enjoyed that, and I felt that I was still able to maintain control, so to speak. So it wasn't like I lost control, but had a good time because I got to be part of that experience. And so in the book, she is telling us or makes some um, points about how we want to connect with other people and how to me, actually, when we connect with others in those types of ways, even if it's a concert or some collective, it can feel very good. And I think it brings up some of our aspects of wanting to connect to others. And again, who those others are can change. It doesn't have to be just one type of group, but we can um, get something out of that type of connection. At the end of the book, she shares some types of lessons, so to speak, that we can have, and some of them include things about how we can use social media for connection and try to actually use it to dial up the empathy rather than focusing on other people's mistakes, um, that we should think for ourselves, how you can actually regulate your emotions. There's interesting uh, sections about that, and she herself studies the regulation of emotions, and so I won't get into all of that, but I really did enjoy this book. I think it's good for anyone who wants to look at and think about how things like social media, smartphones, are affecting the ways that we think, the ways that we actually sometimes don't think because we just follow others, even things like conspiracy theories and cults, uh, get mentioned in the book. So I found it quite interesting and would recommend it highly. That is Hive Mind, The New Science of Tribalism in Our Divided World by Sarah Rose Cavanaugh. All right, we'll be right back.
Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book Hive Mind, The New Science of Tribalism in Our Divided World by Sarah Rose Kavanaugh, and I highly recommend that book. Um, I was talking about technology and how smartphones and things like that, we try to say, oh, phones are bad. And it's a very easy thing to say, oh, it's those phones, whatever we're talking about. It's a very easy way to kind of use that as a scapegoat. And as I mentioned before in the previous segment, to me, it's always important to look at, do we use it to connect or disconnect? And one of the points I made is about connecting to ourselves. And I wanted to continue on that topic in this segment, because to me, that's such an important and sometimes overlooked um, aspect of our lives. We think about what we're doing, what things make us happy, connecting with other people might be something we think about, but our connection to ourselves is something that we very often overlook or don't even think about. Sometimes in therapy, when I ask people these types of questions about what they think about themselves or what they think about within their own thoughts about themselves or what they're feeling, you realize that they haven't really thought about these questions at all. The thinking about their own thinking or thinking about their feelings is something like, oh yeah, I never even thought about why do I do this or why do I feel this way or what do I even feel? And so I wanted to talk a bit about self-awareness, about becoming more aware of ourselves. And very easy thing to say, and we would think we should be able to do it quite easily because we, in a way, have access to the information we're within our own heads, however you want to look at it. But it isn't so simple and easy, and most people don't devote the time and attention in order to really understand themselves better. And so that's the first step, is wanting to know and understand ourselves. It can be scary to look within because you might see things you don't like. It's kind of like if you go into a dark cave that you haven't seen, you don't know what's going to be behind there, and you might be afraid there are monsters. Actually, she talked a bit about this in the book, about how horror movies and the themes in horror movies might have some uh, type of explanation, which I thought was kind of interesting. But I think this is also part of that at times, this unknown feeling. We think the unknown is always outside that we're afraid of, which I think there is some of that. But also I think it can reflect that unknown within that can be very scary. What if I see my feelings and find out I actually have a lot of sadness or a lot of anger or I don't like my job or I don't like this or that or whatever other thing it is, it can actually be quite scary for people to bring up anxiety and people would rather avoid it. So the first thing we have to do is to be courageous and to look inward, to actually want to see what is there, to understand ourselves better. Um, feelings, likes, dislikes, things I like and dislike about my life. What if I have a job that I don't like and I actually want a totally different career? What if I'm not happy where I'm living? Whatever else it might be, but all sorts of things about ourselves. Maybe I am telling myself that I like what I'm doing, but actually I don't. I'm doing it because it makes other people happy or I'm afraid of what they're going to say if I do something different. We might not want to become aware of that feeling or that thought because it can be more comfortable to not do that. But what I'm saying is if we really want to live a full and fulfilled life, it can be very important for us to know ourselves better. So the first step is having that courage to look within, to say, I really want to know myself better, genuinely. Of course, mo no one will say, I don't want to know myself better. Um, a lot of times people even actually, when they say, oh, I'm doing this or I'm taking time off to know myself better, 
at times I think they're actually escaping from themselves and they're just running away from things. doesn't mean everyone is doing that, but at times you can see this mindset. It's not about getting more in touch from within, but just trying to go away from everyone around them and even themselves in some way. Um, but looking inward is the first step, which you can do anywhere, whether you're in your home or in another country. Looking within is something that always is available to us. Of course, things like meditation are one of the ways you can do that. One of the things that people, uh, maybe a misconception about meditation is that meditation means you're just going to be calm and zen and feel good and have these tranquil thoughts, when really that's not the case. Overall, over time, might it make you more calm? Probably. But or make you even feel better in other ways. It seems that can be the case. But when you're first getting in touch with your feelings, that means you'll get in touch with all of them. There's good ones, bad ones, really nice ones, but there's going to be all sorts of feelings. So you might meditate and get in touch with a lot of anger. That doesn't mean you're just going to feel good or sadness that you were avoiding or happiness or other things as well. But we have to be ready that if you do meditate, it's about getting in touch with what's there. We don't have a guarantee of what is there. But that can be what we find out, uh, what you get to find out. Another means is therapy. Of course, I'm a very big fan of that. To me, always people think of therapy about fixing problems. Usually, it's like, oh, well, if I do go to therapy, what's your problem? What's your issue? And of course, we all have issues. Someone was saying that to me today, and I totally agree with them that everyone has some kind of issue or issues, plural, really, just like. If you go to the doctor, everyone has some health issues or concerns. No one has perfect physical health and medical health and not, no one has perfect mental health. So there's always things to work on. But to me, therapy is more about self-awareness and knowing yourself more than just fixing things. A lot of times you don't get to fix the problems, especially not in some kind of uh, way of being cured of them completely. If you're a super anxious person, you're probably always going to have some anxiety or some level of anxiety that you're dealing with, but you might be able to manage it better or make it less, but making it just disappear, probably not. But the awareness of it can help you grow or becoming aware of what makes you anxious and what to do when you get anxious. And when I did this, it helped. When I did that, it didn't help. What are the things I get angry, anxious about? What might be underneath those things? Those can all be helpful. And therapy is more about self-awareness than about fixing, in my uh, opinion. Of course, you want to improve, but the self-awareness piece and self-knowledge oftentimes can be even more meaningful than just focusing on making yourself different. So therapy, meditation, of course, self-reflection. Again, as I mentioned before, we have to want to look within. So questioning yourself, not in a judgmental way, but in a way of trying to understand. And so maybe this brings up uh, a core type of feeling or thought that's important when it comes to self-awareness, which is self-love or self-compassion. And these things kind of go together because you can't love something you don't know. So the self-awareness could allow for more self-love, but we have to have some basic level of self-compassion to even want to look in and then also feel safe to look in. Because as I was mentioning before, if you are, um, afraid of what you're going to see a big part of being afraid of what you see is you're afraid you'll see that you're not good or you're bad or you're unlovable oh i have these really horrible feelings about people or i'm angry so that means i'm a bad person or I have this um, a lot of times in therapy people who realize oh there's a lot of things i do 
to be nice, to make other people like me. And people say I'm so nice. And there's this fear. What if I'm actually a really bad guy or a bad girl underneath this nice persona or mask that I wear? And they can be afraid to see that. If I, if my niceness is fake, does that mean I'm mean and bad? And usually it's not the case. They can be genuinely kind people, but they might be exaggerating it or putting it on steroids and being nice in a not-so-genuine way, which actually to me is worse than being not mean, but just even being real if it hurts someone is better than to be fake nice. Um, but there's that fear of what if I'm this monster what if I'm this bad person? So people don't want to look within. But if we can have the same approach you would with a child, which is when you see a child, you try to understand them, not try to judge them or tell them they're good or they're bad. You want to understand, okay, let's see if you can do these math problems. Oh, you can't do these math problems. Okay, that means we need to work on these math problems. You don't know how to do these yet, and that's okay. And if we can have that same mindset with ourselves, okay, I can have angry feelings or these kinds of feelings, and nothing I find means that I'm an unlovable person. I'm always worthy of love, even if I find out that I have these insecurities. I don't have to feel that that makes me a weak and bad person. Even if I find out I have these uh, angers towards people, it doesn't mean I'm a mean, unlovable person. But having that basic feeling of love, that I'm worthy of love no matter what I find, is critical to allow for us to explore what's there. Because that makes it a lot less threatening. When you know that whatever you find, even if, and, and by this I don't mean as soon as you find it, you're always going to feel good. You might have a, a bad feeling for a while. It might make you feel uncomfortable. It might make you feel, oh, I wish I didn't have that thought or that feeling. But you still can recognize you are lovable, again, as you would with a child. A child makes a mistake. A child does something bad. A child has a bad feeling. It doesn't mean they're unlovable now because they're upset or because they're having a bad day. It just means they're having a bad day. Unfortunately, I should add, a lot of times parents unfortunately, do not give their kids this feeling. If you're having a bad day, I don't love you as much, or you're not so lovable, or if you're mad, I don't like it, or if you're sad, I don't like it. I like you and you're happy. Um, but this is not the mindset hopefully we have with our kids, but we have to also not have that with ourselves. It's okay if I see some things that aren't so good. A big one for me is I'll see clients who get in touch with some insecurities they don't want to have because they don't want to feel weak. Oh, I don't want to be jealous they wouldn't even maybe say this because first they're just denying it i don't want to feel jealous about this guy or envious about this girl because that'll make me feel weak so like no no i don't care i don't really care about that but if they look a little bit deeper they say yeah there, there is something there where there is a fear of let's say intimacy in some other situation or fear of being a failure or fear of a bunch of other things that maybe we don't want to acknowledge and going uh, looking at this from the lens of sometimes this happiness-obsessed society we have or this uh, why should you be sad about this or sad about that, it also reinforces, well, why should you be insecure? And that's something people say, well, why should you be insecure? Why should you be sad? And it's not about why should you, as in someone saying you should be insecure, but we understand that people have them. It's like saying, why should your elbow hurt? Why should your knee be in pain? It's like, well, it's not like it should be, but if it does hurt, we're going to try to first feel it and then understand it. So our insecurities, the parts of ourselves we might not like so much, we have to be willing and ready to look at them. But we have to have this basic understanding of self-love or this basic um, mindset of self-love, that whatever I find, I will still love myself. Whatever I see won't make me unlovable. So it's safe to look and see what's there. Let's uncover every stone because whatever is underneath 
won't be ugly or so ugly that I have to not love myself. And that can be hard for some people to really feel because we have been given so many messages different from that, that you're only lovable if, or you're unlovable if. And so that can make it a lot more threatening to look at what's there. But if we can have that basic mindset that no matter what, I am lovable, I am okay, and I'm going to be okay with it. I'm a human being, so I am imperfect, so I know that I'm going to see good, bad, and ugly when I look at myself and look at myself more closely and more deeply, but that's okay. I'm still lovable because none of those things can take that away from me, that basic um, right, if you want to call it, of being loved by myself and loved by others. Now, in the last segment, I'll get a bit more about what we can do with this self-awareness because self-awareness itself is not enough or we shouldn't just make that the end destination but i'll talk about that a bit after the break we'll be right back Before the break, I was talking about self-awareness and how first we have to have the willingness and the intention and the desire to look within, but also in a way before that or really to allow for us to really do that, we have to come from a place of self-love and self-compassion, that I accept myself, I love myself, that nothing I can learn about myself makes me unlovable, that there's nothing I can see within myself that will mean I'm a bad person and not worthy of love for myself or from others. And that's really important and a lot easier said than done. So I get it that it can be simplistic, just say, oh, just love yourself and then go ahead and look for what's going on within yourself. I know that that itself is a process and I can probably have a few shows at least on that. There are some good books on topics like self-compassion. I think one by Kristen Neff with that title, Self-Compassion, um, that, that is a good one. Um, but so we need that to look within. And so some reasons why this is easier said than done, as I was saying, is like I said, we don't always get those messages, but we want also part of self-awareness is even saying, what don't we want to see, which is very meta and can be so much easier said than done, uh, even more, because if we don't want to see it, we often are very good at having denial that we don't, that we <laughs> denial that we don't want to see it. So we just think it's not even there. So for example, for some people that they don't want to feel sad. So if you ask them if they feel sad, no, no, I was okay about that. That didn't bother me. No, why would I be sad about that? And of course they might just be saying that to you, but feel it themselves. But some people even do that same thing with themselves. Why, why would I be sad about whatever thing that was? Um, or why would I be insecure about that? I love, I love my job. Why would I care that that person got a promotion? But if they actually were to slow down and get in touch with themselves or say, you know what, I actually, uh, I don't like it, but I actually feel a little bit envious that that my coworker got the promotion or this other friend got this, knew this or knew that. When we get in touch with the feelings, we see what's there. But so we have to be aware of those blocks. And sometimes we become aware of that. We say, you know what, I, I know I have a tendency to want to avoid my feelings of envy or not to feel envious because it makes me feel weak or makes me feel bad. But let me, maybe they're there. So we start to understand our biases, and this is something that uh, can, can help us become more aware. And so we become better at being more aware of ourselves. It's never, self-awareness isn't 
something where you're done with it. It's a process. It's a journey. You keep understanding yourself better. One, because even in a moment, you won't be able to fully know yourself. But two, because we're constantly growing and changing and evolving. Another reason why we say you can never even fully know your partner in the same way. You can't even fully know them in one moment, but even still, they are changing every day, week, month, year as they grow and change in their life. So you have to continue to get to know them. But with ourselves, it's the same thing. You're never done in that journey of, of self-awareness. Not only can you go deeper, but you're also changing yourself. So we have to be open to seeing what's there. As I mentioned, therapy can be very helpful because of what I was just saying, those biases and blind spots that we have. Sometimes it takes someone else to see that for us. We don't realize that we keep sharing, let's say, stories like, oh, yeah, this happened and I did that. And can you believe it? Uh, you know, this happened. And then they might help us, the therapist, notice those patterns of, okay, so that's like, you know, if you look at the last four people that you've talked about, blah, 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 this happened. You got upset as soon as they said something critical of you. Could that be your defensiveness or something about that or however it is? So therapists can be helpful in that way. It could also be friends, actually. Therapists is more of a systematic type of way of doing that. But your friends can be great ways of helping you see things you don't. They kind of notice, you know what, the last three guys you dated, you you did this thing. Have you noticed that? And hopefully they can say it in a way that can allow you to take it in more without getting defensive, but that might help you become more aware. Now, I did want to talk also about how self-awareness, we shouldn't look at that as a destination uh, because some people can use not self-awareness itself, but in understanding themselves, they can use it as a crutch or use it as an excuse. Oh, well, you know, I have this insecurity, so I can get angry about this. Or I have this insecurity and they don't ever want to work on it at all. And so, yeah, I can't move forward because I have this insecurity. And I don't want to also present an oversimplified view of, oh, well, if you have let's say an insecurity or if you have some whatever emotional issue or drawback that, oh, just work on it, go to therapy for a few weeks or a few months and it goes away. As I mentioned in the last segment, even with therapy, it's not that things just disappear, but also we don't want to completely let ourselves off the hook and say, well, this happened to me, so um, that's it. This is just me. I think I've heard many different people say this in, in different ways, but with a similar theme, something like, what people have done to you, let's say your parents or other people, what people have done to you, that's on them. But what you do with that is on you. So if someone hurts you deeply, you were cheated on in a relationship or your parents abused you or um, you lived in some kind of environment that was stressful, that was not up to you and that was done to you. You're not responsible for what was done to you, but now it is up to you and your responsibility to, to do with that what you will, to try to make the best of that, to, to make the pain or the damage it continues to have on your life minimal. And again, I want to stress that this in no way is a way to blame victims. Let's say if you've been abused in some serious way to say, oh, well, you shouldn't be sad about it or hurt about it, or you have to just get your life together and don't make this a big deal. Not at all. Scars and wounds can be very deep and sometimes never heal or fully heal especially and can affect us deeply and it's not easy to recover from a lot of different things so when i say this it's not to undermine that pain and undermine the struggle and undermine uh, the challenges that different types of traumas and things we experience can have on us but at the same time recognizing 
we have to put that effort into try to heal and grow and move forward. We can't just let our history become our future without us intervening in any way to say, well, you know, because I, I, I saw this kind of relationship with my parents, I have to be in that kind of relationship. Or because I was hurt in this way, I always have to have that wound open and, and that's it. That's just me for the rest of my life. Or I have this insecurity, so I, I can't go for that job because it involves doing that thing that I'm insecure about. And so I have to just give up. No, we can go forward. Or I have social anxiety, so I, I just won't go to any parties because now I know that I have social anxiety. I've been diagnosed by a professional. Well, that gives me an excuse to never go. Well, no, you recognize you have social anxiety. And so first of all, you can work on that. Let's say if you're in therapy or your own or whatever, but now you have to actually push yourself. And so a lot of times the growing, it can involve therapy and other things for sure. Um, but with that, either, whether you're going to therapy or not, it involves trying different things because what usually happens is we get into the comfort zones and comfort zone. I've mentioned many times before, it can be a misleading term because comfort sounds nice. If you're in a comfortable chair, it seems like it feels really good, right? If you're in a comfortable chair, but what we mean in this case, comfortable just means what we're used to. It actually can be very hurtful. Sometimes people's comfort zone is to enter abusive relationships. Sometimes people's comfort zones is to not uh, strive for things or to procrastinate and then be so stressed out the last moment that they're pulling their hair out every week to get an assignment done. So even though it might seem really weird to call that a comfort zone because it doesn't seem like it feels good, by comfort we mean they're used to it. And in some ways, even as painful as that is, they're in a maybe passive way, choosing that over something different. So they're choosing that procrastination over facing, let's say their fear of failure or their, their perfectionism. They want to write the perfect paper and that stresses them out. So they keep avoiding, avoiding, avoiding. And then there they are Sunday night up until three, four in the morning, putting something together and then just submitting it. And so it's not that it's pleasant, but that it is comfortable because they're used to it and they're choosing that somehow over something else. And I think that's a very good thing for people to, to recognize this point. And it comes up in a lot of different modalities of therapy and also just in therapy in general, recognizing that even when you keep choosing something that seems painful, try to recognize why you might be choosing that painful thing. Why are you preferring these types of relationships? Why are you preferring to procrastinate? It might sound weird to say that, but for some reason you might be choosing that or you are choosing that. It's giving you something. You're getting something out of it. And so that's another aspect or layer of self-awareness is sometimes recognizing the why. So the what is very important. What am I feeling? What am I doing? What are the patterns in the relationship? But the why can be much more meaningful, that that can give you the understanding, which oftentimes can help you in trying to make a change as well, once you understand that why. So we have to recognize our comfort zones and the things we're doing, because sometimes what happens is the comfort zones are our wounds in a way, trying to keep them a bit covered, but not really going into them and trying to move forward. So we're staying with the wounds. It's like your foot has a wound on it. So you just walk in a different way rather than healing your foot. So you 
walk differently and you're kind of used to it. And so you can imagine someone who just uses their toes or something and that's their comfort zone. It's not a way that feels good for them or really can make them progress the way they want to, but they're choosing that over facing the wounds that are on their heel or other parts of their foot and trying to, to help those. But until they heal those wounds, they won't be able to really walk and go forward as much as they'd like. So the same thing is happening in our lives. So again, what happens to us that's not your responsibility, but what you do with it, that definitely is. And so, again, I say this with uh, compassion, that recognizing change is hard, recognizing that when we've been severely hurt by others, especially by those that are people that are close to us, it's not that easy to just make a change. So we shouldn't just think, okay, well, that happened, you snap out of it. And this is oftentimes what people will say. Um, to me, usually it's not really because they're trying to encourage growth, but that we have a hard time tolerating people's pain, or it might get us in touch with our own pain or feelings of weakness we might feel in ourselves. And we project that out and say, oh, well, I don't care what happened. You figure it out, snap out of it. And yes, in a way there's truth to that, that we have to not, we can snap out of it as in don't just try to stay in that same comfort zone. But the expectations sometimes people put on people or this almost demand that you should just instantly change is not realistic and to me not loving. To me, judging someone or putting someone down to help them grow rarely really works or helps them. And there can be more compassionate ways to do that. But people can sometimes masquerade that meanness as tough love. I'm going to, because I love you, I'm doing it in this way. I'm putting you down or judging you or shaming you. And to me, shame is rarely the path towards growth. Almost never, I could say. But for some people, they'll get pushed in a certain way and it can help them. Um, usually I don't see that as the right way. But shame is not really the path towards growth. And that's what I was saying in the previous segment, that self-love is almost a requirement to really achieve higher levels of self-awareness because you have to be willing to love and accept what's there. If you see something, Ugh, I hate that part of myself. That's the horrible part of me. I have to get rid of it. Usually we don't grow. Shame is not that, that part that leads us to growth. It reminds me of that quote by Carl Rogers that I'll paraphrase, but only the curious paradox is only when I accept myself, then can I change. Only one, so that's the end of the quote, but only when I love and accept myself can I then make the steps towards progress. And the analogy I sometimes use is if you're trying to tow your car, if your car runs out of, you know, battery or something and it stops in uh, Santa Monica and you need to get it to Century City, you can say it needs to be in Century City. I hate how it's in Santa Monica. I don't want to even accept that. I don't want to even look at that. I don't want to even imagine that it's there because my car's in Century City. This is where I want to be. This is me. Well, it's not going to work. You have to first accept, hey, my car is here. This is where I am. And I need to now get it there. Let me figure out and see how I can do that. So we have to do the same thing with ourselves. Here's me. This is me. I can love myself where I'm at. It doesn't mean by love and acceptance I'm giving up or I'm not going to try to make things better or even grow or improve, but I have to love and accept me. This is the reality and I want to make the reality different sometime in the future and let's see what I have to do and what I can do to make that difference. So again, we want to become self-aware and then with that self-awareness, use that knowledge and understanding and then use tools to, to grow what happened to us is not our responsibility, but what we do with it and what happens in our future, that's up to us to figure out and for us to do.
All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Amir here in the studio. Also, congratulations to Amir. I'll say that. I won't go into the details right now, but uh, Amir is always with me on Monday night. So thank you, Amir John, and congratulations. Uh, you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. Have a wonderful night.